Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Throughout your whole career journey, you'll be thinking about growing your skills, advancing, changing, and even reinventing yourself. We want to help you do that, and we want to help you live your full potential. In every episode, we cover work and career topics that leverage my global HR leadership, and through interviews and discussions with other career experts and leaders from all over the world. Subscribe and visit us at modern-career.com and see our blog posts, career stories. We also offer coaching and workshops and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Improve Your Brain Health for Better Well-Being. This is a leadership profile with Dr. Judy Kosterman. Throughout her career, Dr. Kosterman has contributed to significant education and policy changes that have impacted mental health, substance use disorders, and brain health across government, industry, and education. Early in her career as a high school principal, she directly witnessed the problem of kids and drugs and the barrier to learning it created, which catalyzed her commitment and determination to find solutions. She's held leadership positions since then at the state and national levels with three executive positions in Washington, including national policy advisor and member of the team directing the national anti-drug media campaign in the White House for the National Drug Control Policy. More recently, Dr. Kosterman co-founded the Brain Health Leadership Foundation to promote breakthroughs in brain health and overall wellness. In our conversation, we'll explore how she navigated her own career and the decisions she made throughout her journey to date, as well as explore how brain health can directly impact your life and your career. Thank you so much, Dr. Judy, for joining us today and sharing some insights with us. I'm happy to be here. When you first started out, what did you choose to focus on and why? Well, like any young person entering, I think, the working world, I wanted to change the world. That's really sort of how I saw it. And working in the field of education initially was the place where I thought that could really best happen. And it was also a place where I was comfortable. I loved adolescence. I loved being one and I loved working with them. And so that was really my starting point. I hadn't really factored in all of the intricacies that might involve and began to think pretty early on in my beginnings as a teacher that I might not change the whole world, maybe not even the world of 30 students sitting in any one of my classes and began to narrow my focus in terms of thinking more thoughtfully about what did I really mean by that, which had been a pervading thought I had had, that somehow I was going to do that. And then running into, as you mentioned in the intro, what I've come to call barriers to learning, which for me also meant barriers to opportunity, ultimately barriers to a really meaningful life. And then that began to change my focus a bit narrow it a bit. That's really how it all began. I think that's really amazing. I mean, you say that like everyone maybe has that perspective, I want to go out and change the world. I wish that were the case. There must have been something in your background, I suppose, that led you to think that way. Well, I had the benefit of growing up in an awesome environment with parents who really saw 
my capacity is unlimited. They saw everyone that way. And my home was filled with all kinds of people from all over the world and of many ages, young to old. And so I had, I would say, the benefit of that sort of view of things. And I met lots of people in my growing up who were world changers. It just happened to be the way that my parents opened the doors of our home and the kind of interactions I had opportunity to have along the way. Like you say, you want to have this big impact. You're starting to think about how do I do that? I'm thinking at the time you were at that early stage in your career, well, not early, but you were a high school principal and you're seeing, there are many barriers to learning, but you're seeing this really big barrier around kids and drugs. Tell us about that. What did you see and what kind of impact did that have on you? Well, I was frankly surprised by it. It hadn't been my experience as an adolescent myself, although I'm certain it was around me and I was aware of that, but I really didn't realize the ways in which substance use in specific, whether it was the student with whom I was talking on a one-to-one basis in my office or the home from which they came to school each day, the way in which that particular issue was often centerpiece. And I hadn't even thought about it in the beginning. I talked about all kinds of other things and working with students and things didn't necessarily seem to change in the way I expected them to. And then finally, I began to really realize that I hadn't known enough to even ask the right questions that had to do with not only substance use, but other barriers that were confronting students who were coming to school each day. That one, however, seemed to be so often a pervading factor that I just began to ask it first. That particular fact and that different action on my part changed everything in working with students. Not only was it pervasive in a student body, the data say 90% of adolescents will use alcohol or drugs before they graduate from high school. Wow. Use means everything. Champagne at your sister's wedding, glass of wine with mom and dad over dinner, but then there is all the rest of it. There's another data point that says 50% of students in high schools will use for the purpose of changing how they feel. That's different. Now I'm seeking a feeling that I get from the use of a substance. And that's a whole nother story than just the sort of general exposure that youth have to alcohol and other drugs. And then we also know that about 15% of adolescents while still of high school age will find themselves involved in active addiction. And then that's another data point. So I began to find that to be true in my own experience. And even at this point in time, in 2023, those data are not much different. The only thing that really seems to change across urban, rural, and all settings across the nation related to adolescence is what is the exposure and what is the opportunity around what drugs they cycle through. We learn that, oh, this one's pretty dangerous. And kids learn that too. And so the new ones come and go. But it's always an issue as we're going through life and particularly as we enter early adolescence and move forward from that point that we're exposed to the things that can change how we feel. And in our, I think, overarching culture, we're pretty open to immediacy. We want it now. Alcohol and other drugs can give you a change to how you feel in a pretty instantaneous way. And some students are 
really seeking that. And for some, it's just a part of just the adolescent experience. It's nothing that really inhibits what they do or who they are or who they will become. It doesn't become problematic for most of us. But for some, it can change everything. And I think all these topics, what you're sharing with us is at a point in time as someone's maturing, but eventually they're going to enter the workforce and continue to want to live a healthy, productive life. All these conversations around mental health, broader physical health, but well-being, mental health, brain health, substance use, all of these topics are at varying stages of maturity, even in one's working life. So we're trying to continue to open them up and explore. But your point is, let's say for those percent that at the earlier stages, let's say high school, do find that they're at the more extreme stages that you're saying, it's having an impact then, but then for the long run also really impact their life and perhaps their career. What are you seeing for those who are in that percent? What kinds of things are showing up and what kinds of impacts? For any of us, just as members of the human race, when we experience a couple of things, one word I think is key is trauma. And the second word I think is really key is pain. None of us are content to sit in pain created by whatever kind of trauma it may be. Sometimes it's physiological trauma. We're injured, we're hurt in some physiological way for which a doctor is going to prescribe some kind of a pain reliever, some kind of a painkiller. We're happy to have that at that time. And there's a time, a place, and a use for all of that that's critical to us. But none of us is content to sit in pain without relief. None of us at any age. And so we seek relief from that pain. Some of that pain, as I mentioned, can be physiological. Other kinds of pain that's really more often this scenario is psychogenic. By that, I mean it's pain that's created by anxiety. That's painful. Created by depression. That's painful. And created by situations and experiences we have, particularly with other members of the human race, that are really difficult. In adolescence, some things that we as adults would think are, yeah, no big deal. It's just a part of growing up, and particularly as we look back at it. But we're in the midst of it. It's painful. And we want any of us relief from that. Depending on the degree of that pain, that's the kind of thing that will really take us to a place where a substance that relieves it becomes something that first we want to simply experience a change to feeling, but ultimately it becomes a way of numbing our pain and having a moment when we're not feeling it. But thereby also numbing your feelings. That's right. Numbing more than the perceived pain. Absolutely. And not working through this trauma of any level. And once again, for some, we're all sensitive to different degrees, to different things. So it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario that you're talking about, nor a one-size-fits-all solution as we're interacting with our lives, you know, their ongoing pace. But it is the degree to which people experience pain, I think, that they seek to relieve it. No one arrives on the planet and says, I want to become an alcoholic, a drug addict. Put me in that line. No one. 
It's never the goal. It's never what we're seeking. We're simply seeking relief, a change to the hurt and the pain. So perhaps it sounds also too like truly at all ages and even in the workforce today, are there enough means to build capabilities to learn those skills, to do other things than to think about the ones that have other consequences? In my work life, I found myself going from education specifically where I ran into these other issues and then really focusing then on all of those other issues, not only in education and among adolescents, but at every stage of our human lives. At that point in time, then asking the very question you just asked me, what are the capacities? What are the solutions? And certainly we frame them initially in this thing we call mental health. The answers seem to fall in a mental health, or now we often term it behavioral health world. So we're looking at what's available through counseling, whether that's individual, whether that's group, whether that's psychotherapy or didactic or dialectic or behavioral, there's cognitive behavioral, there's all kinds of counseling manners in which it's done and taught to professionals who are involved in it. Some practice in one way, some in another, some are more eclectic in the way they approach their world through this lens of mental health, which is all about the mental part of what the brain provides to us, cognition, and our abilities to think through and analyze or sort out, look back, look forward, to articulate how it is that we feel with someone else who can help us do that work. And that's critically important. I don't think the capacity is all that is needed. I, however, really believe it's an ever-growing professional field and phenomenon that is more and more helpful. It's also been more helpful to all of us to have it more and more destigmatized so that people feel more free and more freedom to reach out and to seek that interaction with another human being. Call them a counselor, a teacher, a parent. There are lots of people who can help us throughout that experience that we have. The one thing that I did not know anything about in my earlier experience, even as recently as a decade ago, and by now I'm old, so to speak, by comparison, I've lived many decades at this Not point. Not really, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough for my grandchildren to consider me old, that's for sure. But nevertheless, it wasn't until about 10 years ago when I found myself at that point having a role at the Pentagon. And this role had to do with something there in the National Guard Bureau that they call counter-drug strategy. The National Guard at the time was charged around our nation with working to support local law enforcement, working with customs and borders. And that meant the kind of incoming supply side of the issue around substances and drugs. During that time, as I first began to do this, something happened called 9-11. And so the men and women with whom I had been working were now deployed. They were federalized. They were no longer a domestic military force, a militia to governors across our states, but they were now deployed. And their deployments, by the way, in the National Guard were 18 months longer than active duty military. 
and essential to what we were trying to do in Iraq and ultimately Afghanistan. And they would come back home to the kind of training I was doing. And in the conversations with them, I began to learn that they weren't doing well. They had been in a theater of war. So what was going on with their mental health, as we then termed it, of course, still, even though in the military, to put the words military mental health in a sentence is really not well received. We want them to be strong and not in any way compromised in their military service. So we don't talk about it that much. Yet here they were, and they were struggling as they were sitting in these training sessions. And I was talking to many of them individually on the break in a corner, and they would be telling me their stories about being injured in some way physically in their deployment and having been given some kind of prescribed medication, painkiller, basically, white pills, as they would describe them, so that they could put that broken ankle back in a boot, wrap it, and so they could do the same mission tomorrow that they'd done yesterday when they'd broken that broken ankle and just tried to get through that. And now they would say to me in the corner, now I'm home and I'm out of white pills, Judy, and I don't know what to do. And I'm a counter drug guy. I should have known better. But that just really reinforced to me the fact that pain is the driver for any of us who want to change how we feel. And it was at that same time that I ran into a neuropsychiatrist and scientist who I ran in just incidentally, coincidentally, or maybe I would say today divinely, who began to explain to me his work, which had nothing to do with what I was involved with. He was working with autistic children and he was explaining to me what he was doing that had the capacity to change the brain of an autistic child in a physiological way and to do that non-invasively and non-pharmaceutically that would allow that once autistic child to become neurotypical. And I thought, no way, how could that possibly be? And I did not understand anything about what he was saying initially. What he was telling me was astounding. And so I began to just watch his work and hang out in a clinic where he was now doing that work. And I learned that he could do an EEG, which is something in the medical side of things, of course. We see people given EEGs in medical television programs where they have that seismographic set of squiggly lines that runs across a screen telling the doctor that this person is dead or alive or has had a seizure. But I learned from this amazing man that there was so much more to be seen in that EEG, that his work, which had been over three decades, over 30 years, looking at EEGs, being able to digitize them in a way that take them from squiggly lines to something on a screen you could actually read, that you could learn all about the journey of a person through what you could see in their brain. And it would tell you nothing really about character. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about their mental health in that sense. It was, however, about their journey and what in life had happened to them along the way that was changing 
the physiology and the way in which their actual physical brain worked. So I need to probe here because I'm not sure I understand. So in this clarity of the EEG, can you bring that more to life for us? You could see in brain waves, depending on how brain waves are functioning, each brain wave, not individual brain wave, but each category of brain waves has a range of normal. We speak in terms of delta as a kind of brain wave, which is a very slow wave. And we really want it to function while we're sleeping because we want the brain to slow down, cool, because brains get hot, literally hot during our daily lives. It's as though we had a light bulb sort of burning in our insulated skull. So there's a lot of actual heat there and restorative sleep is the only way it really cools. So we want it functioning at a delta wave level, zero to three in a Hertz level, if you will, of frequency. And then we have brain waves that are theta waves and alpha waves and beta waves, all each of them functioning higher than that very slow delta. And they each have their own range of function. And we want each of our kinds of brain waves to be functioning in their normal range. And if they're outside of a normal range, then we will develop symptoms of different kinds. Brain symptoms or physical, full physical? Brain symptoms, mental symptoms, emotional symptoms, physiological symptoms. Yes, all of it. So if we think of the brain as a signal processor, in its simplest form, we know about radios. And I'm old enough to know that we dialed a radio station to a specific hertz, a specific frequency. I wanted to hear Kissin Radio in Portland, Oregon, when I was in high school in the Portland, Vancouver area of those states at 98.2. And if I missed 98.2 on my dial, I got static. Now that sound, I couldn't really hear the music until I got it perfectly dialed to that frequency. And the brain is similar in that if these brain waves are not functioning where they should be and at a frequency that is innate to our own individual frequency fingerprint. Every brain is different. If our brain is dialed and tuned to what is most optimal for us, then it eliminates all of that static. Static in brain terms are symptoms. We feel anxiety when frequencies are too high. We feel depression when frequencies are too low. And there's a whole range from very low Alzheimer's dimension frequencies to very high, and in the case of returning warriors and veterans, post-traumatic stress, not just anxiety at that level, but PTSD at an even higher level, panic attacks at an even higher level. And when we look in an EEG, we have a chance to non-invasively, through gathering that data, evaluate what's going on between your ears in brain frequency terms. This is a physics lens, not to discount, by the way, that there are chemistry and biology at work as well in all the functions of the human being. This work though, that this amazing pioneer was doing had everything to do with brain condition and brain function differently than mental health. It was the physiology, the organ itself. And this was a new element 
a new dimension I had no information about, had learned nothing about, and found absolutely intriguing. So my first experience personally was to, of course, have my own EEG and to see how my own brain was working. It seemed to be working all right, so that was good. But then to be in the moment when this ability to analyze and evaluate met science that was bringing treatment to our brains in this non-invasive, non-pharmaceutical way, which was never really possible before, about probably late 90s, although that now allows us to bring treatment to the brain non-invasively and non-pharmaceutically through medical protocol that's referred to as transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, something we also refer to as neuromodulation, where we can stimulate brain waves and nudge them or push them into normal range when they are out of range. To me, there's like a chicken and egg question here too, because I guess if you think or behave or abuse, you're going to change what you might see or your brain functioning, but also then you treat and you change. So there's sort of a question for me on the cause and the effect here. Well, the cause, I'll go back to those first two words I said earlier, trauma, pain. Those are the kinds of things in our journey that change our brain waves. Including or abusing substances or absolutely anxiety, depression. Well, that's all in the trauma and the pain. Okay, so that would change. Then I'm out of normal. And out of normal is obviously impacting me physiologically and in a negative way. And psychogenically. Not good to be not of normal, certainly over a long period of time. Because we know, obviously, also that our decision-making, our communication, our problem-solving all comes from optimal brain health. So that's out of whack. That's right. Cognition, frontal lobe, the way it's working. We are, I don't know, sometimes blessed or cursed as human beings to have frontal lobes. We're the only creatures on the planet that do. And for us to be able to have all the kinds of things you just mentioned, that we are capable of what we call executive function, decision-making, planning, strategy, all of the things that we do as humans. Some of those are very big things in our lives. Some of those are very small things. We don't even know we're doing every day, but that frontal lobe allows us to do that. And our EEG helps us in that analysis helps us to see what kind of functionality we have overall. So I'm curious your thought. I mean, I've had physical annually, and I've had a real gift of a lot of executive physicals over the years. I've never had an EEG that I know of. (laughs) What's your view on that? Well, I think that the ability to read an EEG in the way that this particular neuroscientist can do, and is now teaching others to do around the world, I might add, not just here, is not something that wasn't in the normal course of medicine, not in the normal course of our physicals. One of my crazy dreams as an educator originally is that as we do in public schools today, in all schools, I think, actually, we do vision screening, we do hearing screening, We do scoliosis screening. We ought to maybe do brain screening. And EEG is a way now to do that because we have the capacity to read it at such a level that is new to medicine, 
let alone new to the rest of us, in a way that gives us the information that can then guide the kind of treatment that's now also available. None of this really existed 10 years ago, 12 years ago. In a non-pharmacological way, to your point, that just doesn't hook you on something. Well, neither existed, neither the ability to read the EEG at a level that would give us that information and those data, nor the ability to treat in a non-pharmaceutical, non-invasive way. Just to switch a little bit now, as a professional listening, and I say, gosh, I want to do what I can, especially as we're kicking off a new year, but I want to do what I can to improve my brain health, not just for today, but over the life journey and the career journey that I want to have. There are some things that each of us can do absolutely for ourselves that are absolutely free. And the most important thing, I think, for me has been to begin to understand the criticality of restorative sleep. Without sleep, the brain can't really function. And we, by DNA, are diurnal creatures. We cannot change ourselves into owls. We cannot become nocturnal. So our sleep must happen at night when the sun is down. As I mentioned earlier, our brain functionality throughout our day literally is the equivalent of about a 25 watt bulb between our ears. There's literal heat created and the brain has to cool every night to restore and build the ATP molecules we need to function the next day. Sleep is essential. And sleeping not how much, but when is the key to it. And that has everything to do with circadian rhythm. We should begin focusing on how we're going to sleep tonight, this morning, when we get up. Because when the sun rises each day, there is in its daylight spectrum only for about four hours from sunrise for about four hours in total. So let's say from 7 a.m. the sun rises to 11 a.m. During that time in the sun spectrum is what we call a blue ray of light. It's a ray of light that is a certain length that only happens at that time of day. And that blue light is a light that is essential to setting of our clock genes and triggering the building of melatonin throughout our day. And we receive that light through our eyes. So for us to be outside in the morning during that four-hour period, not all of that four-hour period, 45 minutes, maybe it's an hour, with eyes that are not covered by lenses of any kind, no window between us and that daylight and that blue ray, that ray penetrates through our eyes into our brain, triggers the building of melatonin, in the morning and it builds all day long for about 12 to 14 hours and then it dumps. And when it dumps, we'll notice, we feel sleepy, we start yawning. It's kind of a downturn in our energy and we should go to bed. That should be our clue. And if we do, and we then get into that deep restorative REM sleep, the most significant hours the science tells us is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., those four hours, we will probably be good to go the next day. So for all of us, we can change our own experience by simply getting daylight. I recall being an elementary school student, maybe you do too, Mary, when we had morning recess every day. 
we were outside for 30 minutes, 20 minutes. I'm not sure exactly how long. And I remember we were out there rain or snow. We were going to bed at eight or nine o'clock at night because first of all, our parents expected us to, but we were also tired. We were sleepy. We went to bed and we slept. Today, we push through that often, that dump of melatonin, and we have work to do and things we're not done with. And we want to see Stephen Colbert or one of those late night talk shows, but for whatever reason. And now we have just really ruined our opportunity to get restorative sleep. So we've lost a night of sleep. So the next morning, we have another chance. If we keep blowing that morning chance to get that blue light, we keep eating away at our restorative sleep. Some of us, we just literally can't. We drive to work in the morning in the dark because that's our shift. We can't get that daylight. So one other thing that we can do is use a full spectrum light. This is the kind of light that they use in Alaska when there's really no real daylight in the dead of winter. and They use a full spectrum light that gives us the kind of light we have in the morning. Never will it be the equivalent of the sun, but to find a 10,000 lumen, they call it 10 lux light, and to have it on and near us in the morning, right next to us while we're on our computer. When I travel, well, I always carry such a light. When Do you see an immediate impact or it's over time? Actually, it's pretty darn quick. If you can get outside, all the quicker. I have a brother who I would have always termed nocturnal. He was always that guy up all night and slept late. And his career ultimately was a researcher at a university. I mean, he read and was looking at a screen all day long. And when we did a first EEG with him, this doctor looked at him and said, I know what you do for a living. I'm shocked, but I would say looking at your EEG that you are a slow reader. And he said, I am. It's the bane of my existence. Everybody can read faster than I can. And he talked to him about circadian rhythm. He said, get some early morning light, Rick, and see if that can't help you. And he did no treatment to change how his brain was functioning, just morning light every day. And it changed his life. And it can absolutely do that. Now, the important thing, the contrast in my sister and my brother is my brother did exactly that as instructed. My sister, not so much. She didn't hear the fact that it's a 7 to 11 a.m. experience we're looking for, not an all-day experience. So she got herself a blue light, actually an aquarium light, because that's full spectrum, a tube, put it right at the bottom of her computer and had it on all day, thinking that would be helpful. When I learned that she was doing it that way, I'm like, Sally, no, no, it's just the morning, girl. Turn off the light. So too much is not a good thing. So we're back to circadian rhythm. That's the word. It's a rhythm that the sun, light, and darkness have for us as diurnal creatures that gives us restorative sleep and the best function during the day. And we can all do that. That's amazing. (laughs) Some of these things, to your point earlier, can only take you so far, I suppose, if you also have some other behaviors or challenges or things that you're doing that are also really impacting your brain and your brain health. Absolutely. For all of us, function of all kinds is a matter of degree, whether it's our flexibility, physical flexibility, or our brain function for all of it. 
And we also come with genetics. So there's, we've just talked about is really nurture ourselves through that circadian rhythm habit. But we also have nature. We come with a genetic code in everything, including our brain function. We arrive with genetics that are specific. So if there were one more tip, I would say, let's all run and grab (laughs) this first one and get going. But if there were one more suggestion in terms of us all thinking about what we can do, what we can control on the nurture side, what might you offer? Well, I would say there too, we go back to this issue of the organ itself, the brain, what we call brain health, brain function, brain condition, and mental health. Mental health is not something that I'm discounting for a moment or the professionals that work in the field of therapy, counseling. We are human beings, I think, whose meaning in life really has to do with our interaction with one another. We live in groups, we function in groups, we're on the planet as a group, and we have the capacity to help one another. So when we are struggling, it's always a matter of both nature, nurture. So at that point, I think reaching out to someone, it might be as simple as our very closest friend, It might be a therapist, a counselor, whom we really need to see and have the opportunity to really talk freely and in confidentiality with someone who will really hear us. I flash back for a minute just to high school kids who really wanted to talk about their drug use and their struggle because they were trapped now in it and didn't know how to get out of it. And they wanted to talk to an adult who would listen to them who wouldn't judge them as they shared their truth and their experience. And that's also always helpful. In a working world, there are some things in a workplace that I think can be really helpful. One is simply to respect the essentiality of sleep among all of your employees, all of your partners in your work effort, and not have expectations for people that are going to just blow their chance at getting sleep out of the water. Shift work. There was a 100,000 man-hour study. I think it was men and women, by the way, in the state of New York, upstate, Buffalo, to be specific. This was among law enforcement. And they compared health risks amongst night shift and day shift officers. And they found the data to show that health risks among the day shift were four times better than those among the night shift. So the just consciousness that you can't expect people to work night shift a lifetime. You need to rotate people in and out of such an experience because the impact of that on the condition of their brain and therefore their ability to even work produce for you as an employer is minimized. Just to be sensitive to those kinds of facts in terms of how a brain actually functions. And also to be open to workers and partners in your work, to their need to have mental health, behavioral health help if necessary. Not to see that as in any way stigmatized, but to look at it as prevention effort and beneficial to the work that they're going to produce for you. Not in any way is that a weakness. 
we walk through life with all the experiences we have, for starters, that give us different degrees of trauma or pain, some more, some less, and then we sleep more, some less, in terms of our brain function and how it should work. So we want to work on both of those sides of our human experience. We just want to have the best opportunities we can, and we want to support others having the best opportunities. Judy, thank you so much. I have found this fascinating, and it's been really inspiring to see your desire to have such impact, to see your impact in your journey to date. Thank you for that. I think we definitely know these last few years in particular for most people had an impact on brain health and well-being, and many have suffered. And as we launch a new year, we're looking ahead. And as you've said, brain health is a big category across cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and physical, and it does affect the quality of our lives and our work. So the good news you've said is you can control it, you can improve it for better well-being overall, and you've given us a lot of richness with some great practical tips. So thank you again for everything that you've shared with us today. Well, thank you, Mary, for just providing me this opportunity to meet you and to have this opportunity to talk with you as well. Thanks. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music